0: Let's just make the best tasting chocolate that we can make in our small business. That has not changed. Working with farmers directly. I don't even know a broker of cocoa beans. I go mm. get the cocoa beans.
1: Welcome to Better Business Founder, the podcast for purpose-driven business founders seeking to build a meaningful business on their own terms. I'm Liki Tank. And I'm here with you today to find out how better business founders build strong businesses that deliver value to people and to the planet. Are you ready to create change with your business? If so, let's go. Today's episode is with Sean Askinosi. Sean is a former criminal defense lawyer turned craft chocolate maker. Sean is the founder of Askinousy Chocolate, a small batch direct trade chocolate company based in Missouri, in the US. Every year, Sean travels to Ecuador, Tanzania, and the Philippines because Askinousy Chocolate sources 100% of their cocoa beans directly from the farmers, buying the beans at the price that is way above the fair trade price. Not only do they make the best tasting craft chocolate, but they also practice an open book policy and profit sharing with their farmers. They provide free lunches to students and build schools in Tanzania. And at the local level, they have developed a program targeting the youth. And I'm reading from their website to inspire students through the lens of artisan chocolate making, to be global citizens, know themselves and their opportunities, and embrace the idea that small businesses can solve world problems. I find this really inspiring. When I first heard that Sean and his daughter Lauren, who also works at Atkinosie Chocolate, have written a book, I immediately bought it because I was really eager to find out more about this bean-to-bar company and learn all the operational details of this small business whose mission is also to make our world a little bit better. But in fact, I discovered so much more in the book called Meaningful Work, A Quest to do great business, find your calling, and feed your soul. This book is on serving others, on finding our vocation in our own sorrows, on building trust and growth, and our place in the world, among many other very important topics. I recommended this book to many of my friends, especially those who were looking for career change. So in this episode, we started our conversation with one of my favorite parts of the book, which is Shun's personal experience of discovery of his vocation and spirituality in a broader sense. In this episode, Shun will also explain why Asking Chocolate is not a fair trade company. And of course, we talked about success extensively. But I have to warn you about something quite embarrassing or quite revealing, in fact. When Sean was sharing the ugly side of the global cocoa trade business and how it is feeding child slavery, the dog of my neighbour also got very, very angry. And you will hear it. I'm really sorry about it, but I couldn't remove the barking because we had the small technical problem with this recording. I'm very grateful to Sean for his generous time and for being so open in this conversation. Once again, I really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot, and I hope that you will too. So here's my conversation with Sean Askinosi. Welcome, Sean.
0: Hi, pleasure to be with you.
1: I'm very happy to have you on this podcast because I've read your book. It came out in sometime in 2017, I've read it in 2018. And all I wanted to do is to tell people, just go and buy his book. And... <laughs> So it was quite difficult for me to have you on my podcast because your book is so great that I think everybody should read it. I'd like to ask you where you're from and where you're right now.
0: Well, right now I'm in Springfield, Missouri, and that's where our chocolate factory is located. So we have a very small business with just about 20-ish full-time employees. And my daughter works with me in the business and she lives in Austin, Texas and so she and her husband and new baby so my new grandbaby is 18 months old and we have a place in Austin and so we really have been splitting our time between Springfield Missouri and Austin Texas a lot of grandbaby time involved in that so i was i was a lawyer for about 20 years before i started this thing and And I I loved my career until I stopped loving it. This is the story of so many people, including you. (laughs) Yes. I've read your story. And (laughs) and so like many people, I thought I had to make some decisions which were like, well, are there things that I can do to sort of stick it out? You know, I've spent a lot of money and time and education to develop this skill set. And are there things I can do that would help me stick it out? Do I want to stay or do I want to leave it for something new? And if so, what is that going to be? This is the challenge, of course. In fact, now, globally, people are quitting their jobs in record numbers. And we know this. And there are so many opportunities for people, for many people. But I think that the challenge is not so much finding an open door but the challenge is to do the work before looking for the open doors, because I think we will find ourselves right back where we started with a level of discontent, mm-hmm. unfulfillment if we don't do this work. And so for me, it was just this process of trying to figure out what it was going to be, trying to figure out the next thing. And and ultimately, five years went by. I was still working. This is what people do. You know, when they're struggling to find the next thing, most people keep working because, you know, they don't have a money tree in their backyard, most people. And so I just landed on chocolate. And then I started this bean to bar chocolate business 17 years ago.
1: Before we start digging into your chocolate business, I would like to go back to the time to the moment where you decided that you're not going to be a lawyer anymore because you used to be a um, criminal defense lawyer and you right. used to be really, really good at it. And there was one specific moment where you had this trial with Debbie mm-hmm. and you realized that, well, I cannot do it anymore. So can you you know, share a little bit about this and what happened really at that point of time? This,
0: this was a very, very emotional trial. Um, my specialty was defending people accused of murder. And it wasn't that every single case that I handled was like this, but this was what my reputation was built on. And this was a very um, sad case. And not without going into all of the details, this woman was accused of first-degree murder of her um, six-year-old daughter. And she believed that her ex-husband was sexually abusing the little girl. And, and he was. And the courts had been keeping him away from her for many years. But one court decided that it was okay for her to have unsupervised visitation with the ex-husband. And after all those years of protecting this little girl, she was unable to do that in her mind. And so she thought the best thing would be for both of them to die. And they went to the garage and turned the car on and the little girl did die and the mom almost died and they brought her back after she was in a coma using hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And as soon as she woke up from the coma, they charged her with first-degree murder. So this was a very high-profile case in my community. And at the end of the trial, as I said, she was facing life without the possibility of parole or life in prison or maybe life in a mental institution, if I was lucky. And at the very end, we were getting ready for closing arguments to the jury. I was just completely emotionally and physically exhausted because I just concluded another murder trial four months before that. So when I was in the, the ante room, the room right outside of the courtroom, explaining what the judge had just told me to tell her that he was going to basically stop the trial and he was going to put her on probation. That, that just doesn't happen. I mean, uh, judges don't stop trials you know, with basically with minutes to go in the end and say, we're going to, it just doesn't happen. And and so mm-hmm. I was almost kind of confused by it. And I took her into this room and started to explain to her. And I said, you know, we can keep going. We don't have to do what the judge said. I mean, we can keep, let the jury decide. And she said, no, you know, Sean, you've done a great job. And thank you for all that you've done for me. And, um, As I was experiencing this moment, she hugged me. Mm -hmm. So here I am, this person who I've built my life, my career on protecting people. And the roles were dramatically reversed. So she was in this sense, protecting me. And That was a very weird place for me to be. I was not ready for that. And so it was that moment that there was like this shift. She did end up getting probation and everything Mm -hmm. and all of that. But that was the shift. It was a very dramatic moment. Now, at the moment, I didn't say through my tears and as I was sort of emotionally you know, dusting myself off, I didn't say, okay, well, I guess I'm going to quit my job now. It wasn't quite like that. It mm-hmm. was upon reflection, I see that that moment was like this real pivot for me. And I didn't have the skills at the time to know what was going on inside of me. You know, I didn't have the skills to sort of have a self inquiry of, mm. boy, what's happening? I, I just thought something had happened and I didn't know what. And I'm sure mm. many of your listeners can relate to. Just kind of a moment, you know, where you're like, I think I'm done with this. I don't know what's happening, but this isn't working. And then there were other things like my body started telling me this and I started having little, what I now know are panic attacks and things like that. And so what did you do? The first thing I did was think, gosh, you know, what's going on? I'm kind of feeling like I need to do something different. And so I bought a Mercedes. I thought that was going to be the thing that um, <laughs> um, sort of jolted me out of my, out of my fog. And <laughs> obviously that didn't work. I think I sold that thing four months later. But um, <laughs> So what I did is I read the book Tuesdays with Maury. That changed mm-hmm. my life. That book was the launching pad for so many things for me. That book was the launching pad for me co-founding a grief center for children that is in my community that I've co-founded 22 years ago for children and families who've experienced the death of a loved one, like a brother, sister, or parent. And it's still going strong. I'm very involved. Kids and families come for free. Thousands and thousands of kids and families have come through. So that book launched that. That book launched my spiritual reawakening. That book ultimately is responsible for chocolate. It is responsible for my reconnection to a Trappist monastery near my home, all of it. And Mm -hmm. so that's what I did.
1: But you also did visit people in palliative care in hospitals. Can you explain what you did and how it helped you find your vocation? Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. One of the people that I quote frequently in the book is Khalil Gibran, poet, philosopher, and he said that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And I didn't know at the time, but that was beginning to be real for me, uh, his statement. And so what I did is, after reading this book, Tuesdays with Maury, and beginning this spiritual reawakening. At the same time, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Um, I knew that I needed to revisit what I thought was an old wound. And it was my father's death from lung Mm -hmm. cancer when I was 14. He got sick when I was probably 11 or 12. He was a lawyer, my hero. And this time in my life was very, very challenging because we didn't have hospice at that time. And it was just my mom doing the best she could, and she couldn't do a lot. She just couldn't bring herself, for example, to give him pain shots. And so I did that, and I was probably 12 or 13. Wow. And um, it was hard, as it is with mm. anyone who's experienced a family member with cancer and chemotherapy and radiation and surgery. and And to make matters really terrible, people from the church would come over and you know, lay hands on him and say he was going to be healed. And it was a very weird experience. And the, the man who led the prayer group took me aside and said, don't ever talk with your father about death, because if you do, it'll be a sign of doubt and he won't be healed. And so you need to not do it. And so anytime my dad ever tried to bring it up, I pushed it away. And I was with him when he died. It was really hard. He was at home and I wasn't expecting it. And it was not good. Um fast forward, you know, 25 years later, I knew that I needed to sort of revisit that grief in my life, my broken heart that was still broken, um, that is still broken to this mm. moment. And so in order to have a conversation with that part of my life, I realized that I could meet with people in the hospital who were dying. It's, it's called palliative care in the hospital. And they could be in the, you know, neurology or cardiology or oncology. And the palliative care team would give me patients to go visit, people who just maybe were alone, didn't have any family. And they were in some state of dying. And I would visit with them and just talk. You know, I was just a volunteer. I did this on Fridays for about five years. And um, invariably, at the end of my visit, I would ask them if they would like me to say a prayer for them. And this was the exact opposite of what happened to me as a boy. And so they would say yes. And I would say, well, tell me, what would you like me to pray for? This is key because that didn't happen to me. So now this is the beginning. What I just said is the beginning of the unmasking of my sorrow. When I said to a man or woman, what would you like me to pray for? And I listened and and then I repeated their words back to them. I would ask them if I could touch their shoulder or their hand and when they were able to speak the words that they wanted in prayer often that would open up a whole other conversation before we would even get to the prayer it's all the prayer so in other words from the moment that I walk into the room until the moment I leave it's all prayer. It doesn't matter if we're talking about pie recipes or going fishing or whatever. It's all a matter of prayer. But when I actually verbalized their words back to them, then there was a time when I could actually think about them and not me. I wasn't thinking about what am I going to do with my life and why can't I find the right thing and why can't I find my passion and my this and my that and why can't I? Be inspired, and what business am I going to start? And all of that went away. Mm -hmm. And the reason, and this is what I encourage people to do who find any kind of connection to this, is please spend some time thinking about your own broken heart. And is there a place of service that is connected to your own brokenheartedness? Because that's what happened with me. And then those moments of kinship with those patients the moments of mutuality with those patients, they seem to transcend space and time mm-hmm. by that. I mean, it's almost as if those moments were like just suspended, they were frozen. And what I found again, I didn't like know this at the time, but I could only tell you this on reflection is that doing that enough created some space in me that I didn't have before some emotional space where maybe I could think about things in a way that was more relaxed and not wound so tight, bound Mm -hmm. up. Because the way I approached this, leaving one career and beginning another, is I was just going to break down the walls. I was going to research everything. I was going to talk to everybody. I was going to write it all down, and I was going to just bluster my way through it the way I had everything else in my life. But it didn't work that way. And that's during those kind of emotional space is when I thought about chocolate and then so, I quit my law.
1: I noticed that spirituality plays a big, big role in your life. I'm a spiritual person, but I don't, I don't see myself as, oh, as being a practitioner of specific uh, spirituality, but I think it's like something um, we need a North star to help us, you know, go uh, to lead us. And I guess it's, why in your book, there's a whole chapter, uh, well, the chapter is called Retreat. The best kept secret of entrepreneurs, right? Is to find Mm -hmm. a space sometimes Mm -hmm. to find Mm -hmm. oneself. So maybe you could give a little bit of details about this practice, this secret.
0: Yes. The first thing I would say too is, is that the idea of spirituality as it relates to this conversation that we're having is You know, of course, the book came out in 2017. It took me three years to write. I wrote it with my daughter, uh, Lauren, who works with me in the business as our chief marketing officer. But my thinking has evolved even since then. So I want to take just a minute to address what you said about spirituality and to use your word practice. And although you didn't say religion, what I want to say is this. Yes, I've written about it extensively. Yes, it's a big part of my life, but it's not a big part of my life. It is my life. There's nothing in my life that's not connected to it. But that doesn't mean that I'm a saint. All I am is just uh, um, just on my way, searching, just like everyone else. I'm in the fog. I'm, as John O'Donohue says, the threshold, the in-between space. We're all mm-hmm. there. And I am just in that place. What I'm saying, however, is that I have found this, um, not, not even so much religion, and not even really spirituality, it's deeper than that. It's infused into all of my life, from my breathing to everything. So the practice is one that transcends or is in common with almost all religions and all spiritual practices, and that is the question, who am I? Who am I is really the penultimate question of all religion and all spiritual practice. And it can be said in different ways. And I'm talking about Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, and... This question of of who am I is also another way of awareness of self, or as Thomas Merton in my religious tradition, Thomas Merton, a Catholic. I'm not Catholic, but I'm connected to the Catholics because of Mm -hmm. my Trappist monastery connections where I'm a family brother in Missouri. And so Thomas Merton says, can we become aware of our essential nature? Can we become aware of, as Michael Singer would say, our ground of being? It's all the same. Can we become aware of our soul? That's the same uh, in my vocabulary. You know, there are many paths up the mountain, but in order to be connected to a path or multiple paths, I think we do need a practice. And one of the practices is solitude and silence. I mean, unless someone's been living on the International Space Station for the last two years with their friends or whatever, then you've had your own mandatory solitude (laughs) given the pandemic and in some cases silence. And some of us have really struggled with that. And so for me to suggest that people go on a silent retreat or to go to some listeners, it might sound like not very much fun as we're coming out of this part of the pandemic, but I do think that entrepreneurs and people on this path will find great solace and comfort in spending time, even if it's just a day or two or a weekend or longer, in a place of retreat that is a place for them to reflect and to be silent. And there are many, many benefits to this, especially if it's done with intention. I try to warn people, however, that going to a retreat that you've you know, set up by yourself or with others, it's not necessarily the place of received messages or where all of a sudden the agenda becomes clear. Often people are frustrated if they think, well, I'm going to go on this retreat and I'll have my journal notebook and all of the answers are going to come to me. No, it, it can work that way, but most mm-hmm. frequently it doesn't. But the retreat... And the times of silence and solitude are great teachers to us. They Mm. can really be great teachers and they can also be places of great creativity, but often those inspirations come after the Mm. retreat or after the silence and solitude. I'm a believer in this and I haven't been able to go to my monastery now for two years. Yeah, sure. I, I, I talk to them frequently, but, um, So yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but...
1: No, I think it gives you a lot of clarity as well um, when you find yourself, yeah. And talking about clarity, I'm just wondering because I've been um, watching some of the, well, the commencement speech that you gave in 2011 at the University of Missouri. And it reminded me, and I didn't realize that when I read your book, that you started your business almost at the same time, or uh, more or less at the same time as the financial crisis. I mean, I don't have the exact chronology. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a very, very difficult economic situation at that time. So I'm just wondering, uh, when you started your business, did you have the clarity of how it is it now or uh, the fact that you launched your business at the time of financial crisis? Has it shaped the direction you gave to your business. Did you know exactly what you wanted to build or because the the economic situation was a kind of feedback loop to your quest for clarity?
0: When I started the business, the first chocolate bar was sold in early 2007. And then, of course, the financial crisis hit. But I would say that in answer to your question, I knew the framework of the business as it would relate to the vocation and the the vocation within the vocation what i mean by that is sort of sub callings you know the 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 callings that are encompassed in the primary calling the primary calling is make the best tasting direct trade chocolate that we can you know let's just let's just make the best tasting chocolate that we can make in our small business that has not changed working with farmers directly i don't even know a broker of cocoa beans. I go get the cocoa beans. I've always done that since the beginning. Right before the pandemic, I was set to take my 46th origin trip. And so I go to Tanzania, the Philippines, Ecuador, and then a place in the Amazon every year and visit with people. And in many cases, it's the same farmers for a decade. The place in Ecuador I've been buying from him for 15 years, same guy, same family. And so I knew that it would be working with farmers and paying them directly and profit sharing with them and opening my books to them. I knew that from the very beginning because the genesis of that for me was very strong. It was my grandparents. They were farmers in Southwest Missouri. They were really inspiring to me and they were very hardworking people who lived a simple life. They were kind. So that was a huge, huge driver for me. I knew that wasn't going to change, hasn't changed in all these years. I also knew from the probably the first month that we started, I didn't know from the very beginning, but I knew from within the first two or three months that we would connect with students. And so we started this thing called Chocolate University almost in the beginning to engage young people in around our factory who were in the fifth grade. Then we started a middle school program. Then we started a high school program. So I knew from almost the beginning that we would engage students, that would be a vocation for us, and working with farmers directly, that would be a vocation, and that that would all be tied up in this larger vocation of making the best tasting chocolate that we could. That hasn't changed. Now, you know, the sort of details and some strategy within those bigger picture items, That has changed and some of it has evolved for sure, especially the stuff related to community development and poverty and issues that I know you talk a lot about in podcasts and blogs and on your website. Um, Some of those strategy points and the ability to execute on those, that has absolutely evolved, but the major structure points have not. Now, when it comes to the financial crisis, what that did do is it really, it was like a a glass of cold water being thrown in my face because Mm -hmm. I realized early on that I didn't, you know, I didn't have investors or partners or anything. It was just savings from my life, but I knew that I was going to have to learn about cash management and the financial crisis did do that in a big way. I knew I was going to have to understand cash flow because I didn't understand it before. I knew I was going to have to find people who could teach me what that was about. And that really has impacted me to this day, you know, understanding cash flow.
1: I'd like you to talk about um, the chocolate business as it was when you started your business. But I'm pretty sure it's quite similar today. And. I don't know if everybody knows what's behind the chocolate trade, but uh, when I was a student, and I'm going to share a little bit of my personal story, when I was a student, a grad student, we went to Ghana. Do you sourcing from Ghana? No? No. So I, we went to Ghana, which is a very, very big uh, chocolate pr- producing country. And of course, we visited a chocolate farm. Well, we had a little tour, we were showing the trees and everything, and we, as we were living, there was there well, was, was a chocolate vendor, and I was very intrigued because uh, wow, you know i 'm the perfect tourist i 'm in Ghana, I want to buy chocolate from the locals. So I went to the guy to, to the man and I say, "Oh, I'd like to buy chocolate because I want to bring it to my family, my friends, and family and the man was quite reluctant to sell it to me. And he said, no, but it's not for you. It's for the locals. And I was like, yeah, no, no, I want that because it's I want to buy local. And uh, so I kind of uh, forced him to sell me chocolate and I told him, yeah, I'm going to eat it. I'm sure it's delicious. And I opened the small chocolate and I put it in my mouth and my face didn't show the enthusiasm that I expressed before. And he started to apologize and say, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry for the taste of chocolate. But, you know, we just grow cocoa beans and we've never had good chocolate. So we don't know how it tastes like. So I'm really sorry that it tastes so bad. And, and I felt very sorry that there's such a big gap between what they produce, what they make. They're supposed to be proud of, of what they make from their work, but they have to apologize. There's such a big gap between um, the producers and the, um, Consumers. So maybe you can educate us on the state of chocolate trade.
0: Ghana and Ivory Coast are the two major suppliers of cocoa beans in the world. So most of all the cocoa beans, 70% of the world's cocoa supply comes from Ghana and Ivory Coast. And it is the place that the world cocoa commodity market derives its price the world market price comes from Ghana and Ivory Coast. That's the benchmark. And then everything else follows uh, from that. So there are about between three and four million cocoa farmers in Ghana and Ivory Coast, and really only maybe another two million around the world. And so most of the cocoa farmers are there. And so on the one hand, we could say that the Ghanaian and uh, Ivorian coast experience is not indicative of what I know in the, craft chocolate market because I'm buying from farmers that are not in the same condition as those farmers. Um, and they have a better livelihood for a variety of reasons. But most of the cocoa farmers in Ghana and Ivory Coast are at or below the United Nations definition of extreme poverty. And so they're living on less than a dollar twenty-five a day per capita. And mm-hmm. so it's really hard to say um, we should schedule another uh, show to discuss this. Because <laughs> okay. This is a very, very important topic to me. I'm very passionate about this. What we have essentially are about eight to ten companies that control the price of cocoa beans in the world because of the quantities that they buy and have been buying for a long time. Many of these names you will have heard of, and some maybe not. You know, like um, Olam, O-L-A-M. You've probably never heard of them, and they're a mm. huge cocoa buyer. but then others Mars hershey's uh Barry Calibut, maybe you've never heard of them, maybe so. Barry Calibut is based in mm. Switzerland. They're the biggest chocolate makers in the world, and you've heard of Tony's chocolate only, I'm sure mm-hmm. um, Tony's um, <clears throat> until very recently was basically a de facto subsidiary of Barry Calibut. well, Tony's chocolate only c- claims that they're slave free chocolate, and they aren't and <laughs> so. That's a whole other tributary that we're, we won't go down right now. But what I'm saying right. is, is that there is tremendous poverty in the cocoa supply chain in Ghana and Ivory Coast. And so let me revisit what I just said. That means that cocoa farmers are living on below UN definition of extreme poverty of dollar twenty five a day. And therefore, it is why, among other reasons, that we find enslaved people in the supply chain currently... And why we find enslaved children in the supply chain. And the study that all people agree on, including Mars and Hershey and Barry Calibut, Nestle, Mondelez, they all agree that the study that came out two years ago that looked at the issue of children in the supply chain, everyone agrees that there's about 1.5 million children in the supply chain of cocoa in Ghana and Ivory Coast. And everyone agrees that 95% of those children are involved in what's called dangerous labor. That is children with chemicals, children with machetes, and children who aren't, by the way, going to school. Okay? And the companies admit this problem. So the, the Nestle bar, the Cadbury bar that people like or whatever, these are all tainted by the use of children in the supply chain. And what I want to say is that these companies have been sued in the United States courts, unfortunately, not successfully. And it went to our own U.S. Supreme Court last year. And these companies that I mentioned, Mondelez and Hershey and Mars, were successful in the United States Supreme Court and were essentially given license, at least temporarily, to use... Um, Children, enslaved children and children that are performing what's called the worst forms of labor and dangerous labor for now. But there are human rights lawyers in the United States that are Terry Collingsworth is one of the leaders, a lawyer leader in fighting these human rights abuses. And so there are multiple avenues in the United States right now of litigation and regulatory enforcement where we are trying to stop this at least in the United States. We're trying to stop the import of these products and stop these companies. The companies all signed a what's called the harkin engel Protocol in 2001. Mm-hmm. So this is over 20 years ago. They agreed that there was a problem. And what they did over the last 22 years is they've basically just moved the goalpost. And now these companies are basically saying, okay, by 2025, we will have eliminated children from the supply chain of cocoa. Well, Hmm. before that, it was, you know, 2022. And then before that, it was, we'll have this done by, you know. Mm -hmm. And so this is a real problem. And it's a problem because there are monopolistic forces at play. Think about this for a minute. The price of cocoa when adjusted for inflation has not changed in 30 years. In fact, I can make the argument that it's actually gone down. So Mm -hmm. it's no wonder that, you know, at the little grocery store, you can buy a $2 chocolate bar that is 100 grams. And my chocolate bar costs $14 or $12. Well, it shouldn't be a surprise why someone can buy a $2 or $3 chocolate bar that's 100 grams. The reason it's not a surprise is because you're buying it on the backs of children who helped harvest those cocoa beans to make that chocolate bar. And so you would say, and so okay, what's the answer? Some economists from the University of Arkansas did a study in late 2019, and they were able to prove when studying the farmers in Ghana and Ivory Coast and the price of cocoa, that a 2.8% premium in price would eliminate the dangerous child labor in the supply chain, and that a premium of 11% would eliminate all forms of child labor. It would eliminate it, all of it. And so what we're mm-hmm. faced with then is a question of poverty. These um, forces, when you, you look at them, they're very complicated and very complex, and people use all these systems to track you know, the beans and using blockchain and all of these things. But really, the answer is not that complicated. Pay them mm-hmm. more money. Pay the mm-hmm. farmers more money. Who would want to use an eight-year-old child anyway? I mean, they're not going to be very productive. But when you're making a dollar a day, you're gonna do whatever. You're gonna use an eight-year-old or a six-year-old or a 10-year-old. So it's poverty. It all comes back to poverty.
1: Can we refocus on asking us your chocolate and sure. why are you doing things differently? Because you're doing all these things like profit sharing, open Mm -hmm. books, chocolate university, and free lunches for kids, all that. And I'm wondering why you didn't set up a charity versus a company?
0: My company is a for-profit company. We just believed from the very beginning that this was the way we would do business. And we are profitable. We're not a huge company um, and that's by design but we wanted to engage the students and we wanted to engage the farmers. And so we were able to do this for years. And then we started doing more community development work. And let me give you an example. One of the things that we did with the farmers in Tanzania is we facilitated what's called their 10-year vision of greatness. And I write a lot, as you know, about the vision of greatness. And my great friend and mentor, Ari Weinzweig, who is the co-founder of Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's a great place. He's written tons of books and he's written prolifically on this idea of visioning and he helped me. But we facilitated the vision of greatness for the farmers in Tanzania, 10 year. One of their nine points, this is a small farmer cooperative of 60 people led by a woman. And one of their things is they wanted to have early childhood education in their village. They wanted to have a preschool. So we found a donor, one donor, who wrote a check for $85,000. And we gave that to the farmers to build a preschool. They built it. It opened basically the month that the pandemic started. (laughs) They have 100 kids in the school now. The farmers are running the school. Now, in the last two years, it's been a challenge. And I could talk for another hour about this idea of partnership and community development. And the partnership is one in which we are not the drivers. The farmers are the drivers. It's their school. If you went to that school today, you would find my name, the name of my company, nowhere in the school. Mm-hmm. It's not flying in a flag. It's not painted on the wall of the school. It's nowhere. You would not know, but because this was the dream of the farmers and and they Are the ones that are managing the school. Now to get to that place, it's kind of messy, you know, we're, but we have such a great relationship with the farmers. It's this back and forth and back and forth. And we have donor money. And so this is a long answer to your question, but what we did do a few years ago is we set up the chocolate university as a public charity foundation. So we could get donors from people, you know, around the country, um, really and around the world that share our passion and can contribute and receive a tax deduction for their public charity contribution. And so we have a separate board of directors and an executive director that works part-time that helps us with these programs because every other year I'm taking local high school students to Tanzania to have this transformative experience. And you know we're doing this work and we needed to be able to ultimately have a public charity that could take in this money and then we could do these good things with the money. But in the beginning and for the first You know, 10 plus years, it was just us. We did it all by ourselves. And we still do the school lunch program by ourselves. We do that sustainably with no donations. We have over a million school lunches we've provided to malnourished children in Tanzania and the Philippines. And that's outside of the public charity. That's just us.
1: I was exposed to your brand through the podcast and also through your book, but I noticed that on your website, Is that you're not very, I mean, you're not using any like labels that are very fashionable these days, like ethical, organic, and all blah, blah, blah. And so I have two questions about it. Uh, Why you chose not to be loud about what you do? And the second question is how do you communicate? How people know that you're different?
0: The first thing about labels is I don't believe in fair trade cocoa. I don't know fair trade coffee or other fair trade commodities, but I do know cocoa, and I think um I think it gives consumers a false sense of caring because the premium that people pay for cocoa beans that are labeled fair trade is not enough, and the farmers mm. don't receive the money, and so I'm not going to participate in that. Um, okay. The same with Rainforest Alliance and many of these other, um, as you say, you know these kind of um, fashionable in in vogue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. labels. um, We're just not going to do it because we practice something called direct trade. It's not a regulated term. It's just how we describe it in the book and how we describe it on our website. And it's just you know going to visit farmers and open our books to them. We open our books in their language. So in Tanzania, the financials are in Swahili and we profit share and we put all of that on our website. So now I'm getting to how we communicate it. We put All of this on our website, what we've paid farmers every time we've bought cocoa beans since we started the company and how that compares to the world market price. And we do show how it's more than even the fair trade price. And we're small enough that we can do this. And you talk about this on your blog. Um, But as a small company, we have some features that big companies don't have where we can be more uh, nimble. We can respond uh, more gracefully, perhaps, and have more direct relationships with customers and stores and farmers. And this is a very fulfilling part of the experience to have these kind of direct relationships. And so the way we tell the story, well, first I would say that we are going to build a trust relationship with our customers over time. And they are going to learn about us through, well, like through this, they'll learn about it through your podcast. They'll learn about it through social media. They'll learn about it through our website and through packaging on our chocolate bars. Through talking with other people who know about us, who've known about us for 15 years. And over time, there will be this trust. And the trust is a character state. And this character state is you can see what we're doing, you can experience it over time and say, you know, I trust these people. And that is more important to me than a, a stamp or a label, because what I'm doing is I'm abdicating my duty and responsibility to be the kind of person and, and company that we've been talking about this hour. I'm abdicating that to someone else, to Fair trade or Rainforest Alliance mm. or whatever, and I don't want to do that because I don't believe them. <laughs> and so it's easier, it's much easier to slap that label on my package and say, just let them be responsible for it. But I don't think it's right. I don't think it's the best thing to do for humanity, so I'm not going to do it. But we're going to tell the story the best way that we can, given the resources that we have, which you know are not super plentiful. You know, we don't have a lot of money for advertising and things like that, hmm. so we just do little bit by little bit.
1: You own a small business, and you're very proud of being a small business. How do you define success? In a small business like this one.
0: The idea of success, I think, is something that changes over time, both personally and professionally. And I wrote a chapter in the book called How Much is Enough? And this idea is it's a question of sufficiency. What is sufficient? What is enough? And I think that's a question that we ask ourselves and we should be continually asking because the answer to this is dynamic. It's not static. What, what is enough when we're in our 20s is different than when we're in our 60s. And it's okay. But the question should at least be asked, how much is enough of all of it? You know, how much is enough cash flow? How much is enough Instagram followers? How much is enough um, pay for me? How much is enough so that we can provide health insurance for employees? We need to be asking ourselves this, but I think we we can also ask it. We can ask it personally. And so I would take this back to where we spoke of earlier, which is, at this point in my life, I don't separate the the question of personal and professional success. It's all the same. It's wrapped up into this idea of being aware of my true self and my essential nature. What can I do in my life and my business to become more aware of who I am and less worried about this person over here and that person over there and more concerned over my own awareness because, you know, Gandhi talked about this, be the change. And, and, and so this idea of uh, that I'm not trying to change the world. That's not my responsibility. If I can change this, then that's, that's the best I can ha- do. Right? My heart. Heart. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If I can do that, then I am a personal and professional success. Can I understand more and more each day who I am? And be connected to that place within me that I believe was created in the image of God. And can I do that? And then can I turn around and face the world and integrate that awareness into how I treat others? And I will say it again, and I said it before, this is aspirational. (laughs) You know, this is aspirational. I am imperfectly on this journey to do that. That's how I view success.
1: One of the recent podcast episodes you were on, you talk about your exit, your own personal exit strategy, and uh, you were very surprised by the valuation of your company, of is it Chocolate, the company you've created. And this valuation is done by people that are not part of the business, and they focus on certain metrics that do not include things that you created, and you said, um, as you very proudly say that it's about chocolate, but it's not about chocolate. And, um, so I would like to say it's about money, but it's not about the money also for your business. So is there anything you can do or we can do to change that mindset, this approach to business, which is totally focused on financial terms?
0: That's a great question. Um, (laughs) The context of my surprise, maybe, I don't know if maybe surprise is my, 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 my education, my recent education on valuation <laughs> was interesting and a little bit surprising. This has happened over the past five years, as occasionally people have sort of kicked the tires of the mm-hmm. company to see if they're interested. I always said from the very beginning of this company that I would not hold it so tightly that I would not be ready to let it go at any moment. I tried to run this business from the first month as if it would be sold that month. I just didn't want to hold onto it so tightly. And so as the years have gone by, I've been open. And so in the last four years, maybe I guess, some people have approached me and I've learned a lot more about how the business world values companies in different spaces, not just the specialty food space, but the consumer product good space, the tech space. And one of the things that has troubled me over the years and even before this new education is this concept that taught in business schools called um, social enterprise or social business, or I don't like it. I've tried to remove that phrase, social entrepreneurship, from my website and I'm not a fan. And the reason is because I have two reasons. One is I feel like it's sort of elitist. I think it separates businesses from, you know, the kind of, well, elite, you know, that we can do this. We're socially aware. We're socially conscious. We're woke. We can be involved in community development. Mm. Whereas the sort of old school business that, you know, sells tires or whatever, or your gift shop down the street that they can't be. Social entrepreneurs. And I think that's wrong. And I think you agree with me, at least from what I've read on your website, that all business, and let's talk small business, all small business can be a force for good in the world. All of it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a social entrepreneur or some, you know, it's a label. Right. It is. But the, the second reason that I'm concerned about this phrase and what's happening in business schools is that there's this push toward telling students, look, you can do well in business by doing good. And what they're saying is that there's this, there can even be a causation between if you'll just be a good person in the world of your business, then you will be rewarded financially. Don't worry about it. This has happened for years in business schools around the world. And I am not here to say that is untrue in all business, but it's untrue in most business. And if you're in pharma or tech or something, okay, what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you. But if you're just in the run of the mill small business and you think what I just said, which is, oh, if I just do good, then I will do well and I'll be profitable and I will I will be financially rewarded because I'm a good person, that is not necessarily the case. In fact, you will find that your time just what the day In the amount of time that you spend in a week, if you're thinking about a feeding program that you're trying to start in fill in the blank place, that time could be devoted in selling your product or finding ways to get more money. And we have choices to make. And sometimes those choices end up in a sacrifice. And that is just the real world of being a business that is attempting to be a force for good in the world. In the world Mm -hmm. is maybe your neighborhood, your street, your town, your village, your country, the world. So what I have found is that we have made some sacrifices and I don't regret those, but I have seen how some of those sacrifices have impacted perhaps my top line sales. Perhaps I would have more top line sales if I had focused on more top line sales, but I didn't and don't. And so I naively thought, oh, well, they'll just, people who are interested, potential buyers will just immediately see and understand the nature of this business and what the possibilities might be for someone who's smarter than me. And that's not necessarily the way it works. And so what I'm saying is, is that there's this complex relationship that we have with money in our lives. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. What do we need? Mm. You know, what is what is sufficient? And so that's a question that I'm asking as I'm thinking, okay, well, at some point, I will sell this business and at least retire from this part of the business in some way, if that's in the order of the universe or not. And so what I've learned is that in order for me to be true to this business, that I need to, if I could use this metaphor, I need to lay the business down in the same way that I picked it up. So as I'm walking down this path 17, 18 years ago, the way I picked this business up along the path was really sacred. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a matter of prayer for me and meditation and, and soul searching and honest reflection So I picked it up in that spirit. And so it needs to be released in the same spirit. And so that's my job. My job is to be true to that and to not say, okay, well, it's time to cash out. You know, I need to buy a jet with this money. And if I'm not going to be able to buy a a jet, then I guess I'm going to be you know dissatisfied. No, that's not the way it will be at all. That's. I don't know that I really even answered the question. I haven't talked about this a lot, but what I'm saying is, is that we, all of us, have this complex relationship with money. I mean, we do need a certain amount of money in our mind of this is what we need. And then, well, I have a goal of this. I'd like to be able to do this with this money, and I would like to be able to, you know, maybe start a business, or I'd like to be able to help my family or my extended family with this money or whatever. We all have these various plans in mind with what we would do with money, but I think it's important that we recognize that. And I think it's important that it be in congruity with the reality of the business that we're in. Otherwise, it will become imbalanced and we need this to be in balance. That idea of achieving balance and harmony in these very challenging questions is the path. That is the path it's changing frequently, you know, and it's our responsibility to notice the changes and be aware of those changes and how we respond to them.
1: I wasn't expecting you to answer that question with such, um, from such a personal perspective, but rather, you know, what I was trying to ask was like, maybe there's something in the business that outsiders couldn't see and couldn't value and how mm-hmm. can we show it to them yeah. there so then they can increase the valuation of the company yeah, so right. i wasn't no. expecting you to get yes. that i wish personal. I you,
0: yeah well I, I wish what you say is true i think that's actually i think if i spent my days asking the question that you asked i'm afraid i might end up disappointed because <laughs> now, and maybe not maybe not but because what that goes back to then, what that says is that my behavior over the last 17 years should have produced more money now, not necessarily more money then, but it should produce, produce more money now, otherwise known as increased valuation. I think that's a tricky question, and I think that it, um, it can lead to disconnection and it can lead to losing our way. Yeah. We, we can lose our way, perhaps.
1: Right. maybe maybe yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i have a very very final question which is mm-hmm. you have a message or something to put in the time capsule what would that be the message or something
0: i think the message in the time capsule would be um find someone who needs you and roll up your sleeves and go serve them And at the same time, you're doing that, ask yourself who you are.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, we haven't mentioned the title of your book. I think everybody should read your book, which is called...
0: Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul.
1: Okay. Thank you, Sean. Bye. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much. I hope to see you someday.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Did you like this episode? If you've enjoyed listening to Better Business Founder, why don't you share this podcast with a friend that could also benefit from these conversations? You can also subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and leave a review to help other people find these conversations. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can email me at hello at betterbusinessfounder.com hello at betterbusinessfounder.com. And I would love to hear from you because I believe that your business is the catalyst to create the change you want to see in the world.